0: Dressed in dirty rags, Pretty dresses on her back She'd never had Folks say she don't Know right from wrong But to me her smile Lights up the dawn Oh Lazy Susan Won't you come on home to me Lazy Susan my company. Lazy Susan, won't you come on home with me, yeah. Her daddy died when she was born. Her mama works the mill the whole day long. But Lazy Susan never worked to live sings a song strumming with a guitar pick. Oh, Lazy Susan, Susan ooh, ooh, won't, you won't you sing your songs for me Lazy Susan ooh, Girl, can we can sing and honk me Lazy Susan ooh, ooh, Won't you come on home Change her ranch to silk, make her look like a lady. Refined. I won't let her laugh at her no more. Gonna make people look at her like they never did.
1: This is podcast number 271, and it's entitled Lazy Susan, just as the song which you just heard, which is a mid-period spinners track, which is uh, extremely um, apt. And uh, the theme is imputation with a little doffing of the hat to a literary source uh, that has excited me of late, especially right now at the time of Easter that Stu Shelby very perceptively and unusually um, brought to bear uh, during his Palm Sunday sermon at All Saints Episcopal Church Winter Park. And uh, the podcast is dedicated to Stu, or Father Stu, as they call him at All Saints, who is an absolutely marvelous, open, generous, delightful, kind pastor who also stewards the great gospel. And in Lazy Susan, which is an improbable song, and I'm sure the writer, when it was produced in the 1970s, just was trying to sort of make a play on the, uh, uh, you know, what you have in the, every kitchen as a Lazy Susan turntable. And uh, he's trying to say that he's, uh, Lazy Susan is this rather feckless uh, uh, rather um, uh, sort of artistic girl who is also doesn't really look after herself and is kind of stuck in a rut to say the least and yet she's got something obviously he has a he's, he's, he loves her and he's saying he's going to take her out of her um, sort of uh, no exit situation and marry her God willing and he's going to take her to Memphis, Memphis uh, to get her dresses which will give her confidence and he's going to love her and uh, she's going to turn out to be a Wonderful, powerful in the deepest sense, awesome, uh, beloved for the singer uh, as a result of his seeing beyond the um, kind of superficial, sort of lazy Susan. And he sees her in his lover's mind's eye is growing in grace and age and stature and it is the most touching expression of imputation and this is how love actually works love works through a um through a uh, uh, an exchange by which you are seen as, you might say, better than you are, or more gifted than you are, or prettier than you are, or more masculine than you feel you are, or whatever it is. And and you actually, uh, in being viewed that way, it doesn't just sort of stick, uh, you know, uh, in the dead in the water, but it, uh, it has an active uh, change agent effect. Uh, it is the agent in the prescription that alters your whole life and you actually become the way you are regarded and that's the doctrine of imputation the um There's an interesting article in the National Review that Thomas Salmon brought to my attention uh, concerning the the, uh, great 1956 western, The Searchers, which many people believe is really one of the greatest movies of all time, and I certainly believe that, and have acted on that for years, and it's sort of a kind of an attack with some justice on the kind of way the movie has been absolutely become the triumphal sacred cow of left-wing filmmakers who see in it a kind of ironic commentary on American racism and uh, the destruction of the American Indian culture and uh, the racism that the Ethan Edwards, the hero played by um, John Wayne, seems to engender, and uh, they uh, talk a lot about the Catholic possibilities versus the Protestant possibilities. Also, in the comment thread, that the the uh, way that uh, Ethan sort of moves from uh, at the very end, he moves from hostility to incredible grace, from murderous rage to unbelievable acquiescence and enabling of love, in the most powerful way. When he says, uh, "You know." To the Natalie Wood character, I'll take you home. I mean, good. Gosh, and um, that is what has made it always so powerful. But he sees that as a Protestant view as against John Ford's more characteristically Catholic view of grace, by which grace is a process of sanctification, whereas uh, the—actually, it's a commenter whose last name is uh, Jouffre. I think he's from France or has a French name, Jouffre. And he says that uh, the Catholic view is that grace is— Gradual, which we don't see in the John uh, John the John Wayne character, but uh, rather uh, the Protestant view is a sort of grace suddenly kind of comes, and then it uh, it it comes in a great blow, but then it leaves. It, it uh, this uh, imputation he gives to the little girl, who now become a teenager, the daughter of the woman that he truly loved, who was massacred, he who became an Indian squaw. He he he, um, he changes sort of instantly, a, a kind of an imputation that happens instantly, but at the end he might. Receive Seed and go back to his old. It's a long and um, complex but quite interesting article about Ethan Edwards's transformation at the end, the very moving ending of uh, The Searchers from a Catholic and Protestant point of view. But as I read it, I thought to myself that he doesn't really understand his caricature, Jouffray. It's a lengthy comment, and Thomas Salmon brought the comment to my attention more than the sort of revisionist article. The uh, power of the... Um, of the article rests in the misunderstanding that this nice Roman Catholic man... I was thinking about Notre Dame too uh, in the conflagration, but uh, this nice Roman Catholic man understands uh, imputation wrong. He says imputation is when you throw a, a blanket over somebody, but the person underneath the blanket doesn't change. Or you regard them, you know, the robe of righteousness, you see them through it, but they themselves are still horrible and full of sores and putrescence and all the things that are horrible. And that is an um, um, important uh, um, uh, misunderstanding because in our uh, uh, experience uh, that we've had ourselves, imputation uh is uh, changes the whole equation and changes you personally at the deepest level. I, I can say that. I mean, Mary is imputed to me constantly and often qualities that I do not have by not regarding the qualities I experientially do uh, express. And it's a fantastic thing that um, that she does, and it's imputation. And it's happened with me in other situations. I've seen it all over the place. Now, let me say one other thing: the uh, the revisers of, uh, were both on the left and now on the right, uh, politically speaking, of the searchers from 1956. Miss what I believe is the absolute core theme it 's not really about racial revenge or anti american Indian or holocaust it 's about um, a man who is uh, unbelievably undone by the death of the woman he loves, who is actually his legal sister in law and uh, uh, ethan edwards 's sister in law is horribly massacred, and her husband and her two children, one of whom is then abducted the little one by the Indians and becomes Natalie wood. Uh, but uh, the uh, he is so undone by the death of the woman he truly loves, and that is spelled out without any question, although it's done visually uh, during the remarkable first 20 minutes of the movie. Um, it is really his love for Martha... Uh, Edwards, his sister-in-law, that motivates him, and also it is his love for Martha at the end that makes it impossible for him to murder the daughter, which was fully in his mind to do. So the logic seems to go because she has been a squaw and there's sexuality with the Indians, and he's, he sees it. You know, he he he's a f- a supposedly falls into a, a white man's racial rage, but that's not what the movie is about. It's about the death of his beloved Martha and um how he finally comes to realize that this little girl is is all he has of Martha, uh, who he will never have uh, in this life, and he uh, saves her for Martha's sake. That is my interpretation, but isn't it interesting that these writers, they go all out on these narratives, and by the way, David's discussion of narratives, David's Zal's discussion of narratives in the chapter on politics as a religion in Seculosity, the new book that David has just recently published, uh, sees through these powerful, appallingly rigidified and objectified narratives and not once does any of the 41 42 45 comments let alone the article on which they comment in the national review by a fellow named kyle that's his last name do they uh, ever see the core motivation of the character which is uh, the area of romantic love which i've talked about you know ad nauseum but that is uh, an area of of such uh, um, core um Wait for the human connection uh, that um, to miss it is to miss everything and most of these narrative people on the left and on the right miss the greatest theme of all which is that theme and I'm sure they're undone in their own natural sort of you know, farcical lives. I'm sure they're undone when it comes down to it. I mean, have you seen Hair recently? I mean, it was all about people taking off their clothes in the '60s and the '70s, and a man laying down his life, in fact, for another. But it also was about a girl, a two girls, and it's uh, just the most romantic possible musical, together with all of its, uh, at the time, rather touching flower child. Uh, atmosphere I've said this many times and I'm saying it again and where imputation comes to bear most powerfully is in imputation Uh, sorry in the area of love between men and women now I'm going to end with um, um, sitting on top of the world also by the spinners from the same set which is just fabulous let's listen to the refrain you and me babe sitting on top of the world where they're we're detached from everything else that's going on we're looking down but we've got us our life is the absolute and i'm going to end just by saying something that was very good that Stu did Stu um shelby introduced in his sermon on palm sunday which was heavily obstructed by an overly long, uh, quote, Passion Sunday, end of quote, reading that just completely turns what should be a Palm Sunday uh, fascinating and ironic uh, parable of uh, the um, fluctuations of the mob and of human um, adulation and hatred it, it turns into a Good Friday service and here he was actually facing a lengthy Good Friday service in which he had to preach on Palm Sunday which like most Episcopalians is poor guy and he invoked a book I'd never heard of I've heard of Taylor Caldwell who wrote the book she was a lady who died in Greenwich in 1985 and wrote books in the 40s and 50s that were massive bestsellers like Dennis Wheatley now looked upon terribly because she was sort of conservative she was the she was one of those rare popular uh, writers who actually was a republican and um she made that clear in her novels uh, and therefore she's not read but she sold 30 million books and her hollywood uh, profile became very high in the 70s but um she was a very devout christian that's what's really interesting about her in my opinion and uh Stu invoked actually under the title of the second book I read the first one is called The Listener and it was published in 1960 and the other was published in 1966 and I think it is To Him Only Who Listens or To Him Who Alone Listens It's got a title has a uh, objective pronoun in it that I keep getting mixed up but it's the same idea and it's the idea that there's this sort of presence behind a curtain in a little kind of mausoleum like perfect building in a midwestern town that a man gave money to endow and had a, some kind of religion experience that caused him to build this building or have it built just before he died and in it people who are troubled of all demographics of all kinds of both sexes you of all um of all possible human stati come and are invited to talk to quote the one who listens, and there's a presence behind the curtain, and the curtain is immovable, except if you press a button, and the button only goes if your voice manifests real need. It's a fascinating story, and it's very touching. It's a little bit of a fantasy, but each of these people, from sort of society matrons who are hopelessly, in fact, hopelessly bitter and resentful and unloved, and raging, to uh, um, retired men who are have uh, unacknowledged archaeological hurts, to hurt and bruised young women who feel ashamed of their conduct in one department or another to rampaging ego young men who are putting everything in career but are seeing roadblocks to a, a african-american gentleman who is so anti-god and jesus christ and he, it's painful because of his own upbringing and his own sense of a, a grievance and he they each come one by one by one and they just talk and, and the, whoever is behind the curtain never speaks Obviously, it's Jesus Christ in his eternal glory, his eternal quiet presence. He never speaks, but because there's a total feeling of non-judgmental and imputing listening, everybody who is uh, speaking to, uh, to uh, the curtain, to the one who listens, tells them everything. And I mean everything. You know, most of us tell people nothing. I was telling Mary. I, we're in a wonderful small group of people whom we really love, but... Um, but I've only once in my entire five years of being part of it. It's a really wonderful group, and we love the people. Only once have I ever actually said anything that really mattered to me, and it sort of shocked the group. I said something a little bit about my attitude towards my, uh, my, my the last 20 years of my career. I just sort of allowed something to come out about my particular somewhat negative attitude towards my, the last few years of my career in the church, and it was like I had just, you know, blown a bomb up, and I, Mary said, boy, they were really taken by surprise, and I didn't mean to, and it's actually about number four on the things that I I think about it's about number four on the list of five things that I think about a lot is that. But after five years, I mentioned that number four out of five once. And, uh, you know, you never tell people what's actually going on in your mind. If you do, you're very fortunate. You are very, very fortunate. And in this wonderful book that Stu recommended, uh, two books, uh, um, But the listener, get that first. You can get it easily. It was a bestseller in its day. Um, People are able to say what they really believe and think about themselves and their lives in an absolutely truthful manner. I mean, a 100% truthful manner. And in doing so, in the light of this extraordinary, imputing, kind, and compassionate presence that they feel, they are healed in being listened to fully and 100% as opposed to 20% or even 10% in normal life, even with people you trust. They are healed, and often the healing results in a renewed uh, acquiescence and actually appreciation of the lives that God has given them rather than their hating, their resentful desire to change everything, to blow it up. Uh, It's a powerful, powerful book, and I think there are 15 different sort of stories that cover every kind of person, and if you add both books together, there are about 28 or so. So read it, and thanks, Stu, for letting, what is it? Help him, help us to help you. <laughs> Thanks, Stu, for thank thank me for thanking Stu because he gave us something so important. And the listening ear is an imputing ear, and it creates a mighty love, and it creates a situation of total um, connection that we hear in this rather um, not entirely consistent but very beautiful uh, song by the Spinners in their mid period. Thank you very much. Love you.
2: Give your love and I'll give It somehow weeds out. can't seem to hear though i'm speaking loud though some of those things are true
0: So blue before See, girl, I'm a simple man. Doing the best I can to make you see that I love you good. I'm needing your love. Cause living ain't all. Hey, hey, I got to tell you about I, I got to let you know.